Well, if you're a fan of movies or stories, surely you're a fan of trilogies. And trilogies are, are interesting kinds of stories because they, they tell a story over a longer arc. And usually in the first act of a trilogy, you have a lot of character development. Who are these people? And then right near the end of the, tri- of the part one of the trilogy, you, you, you have some sort of conflict emerge that gets you started. And that's where the movie ends. So oftentimes, trilogies and Acts 1s are kind of just, you know, they're a little bit slower paced. You're getting to know the characters. And, and, and we've already been through Act 1 in the Joseph trilogy. That was chapters 37 through chapter 41, where we have Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers, ascending to reign in Egypt, and then it closes out on a good note. But there's beginning to be what's going to happen with the brothers And now we find ourselves in Act 2. Now, my favorite parts of a trilogy are always Act 2. I'm weird like that. Perhaps it's because in redemptive history, we kind of live in Act 2 right now. We're waiting for the consummation to come, the great victory of the king to arrive, but we live in the midst of the mess where good things are happening and progress is being made, but nonetheless, we still live in the midst of conflict and difficulty. And chapter 44 of Genesis, which is the chapter we find ourselves in this morning, is the end of Act 2. It's the capstone of the conflict, and everything is getting ready to shift in 45 and bring us in to a whole new era as Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, as we'll see, Lord willing, next week. But this is the end of Act 2. This is when conflict is at its highest, and this is when you get to the end of chapter 44, and everybody should just be like, oh, to be continued, season ends, see you next fall. It's the worst spot to stop. It's the absolute worst. If you didn't know the story of Joseph, this is the worst spot to stop because it's the It's the calm, or it's actually the storm, in a sense, right before the calm. It is the moment of moments. The moment we find ourselves in is a a somewhat difficult one for the brothers. And so as we walk through this text this morning, three points for you. We're just going to walk through the story, spending most of our time on Judah's speech in verses 14 through 34. It's the longest speech in Genesis... It is a masterful piece of argument. It is an amazing, moving speech, probably one of the most moving speeches ever recorded in human history. It's succinct, it's powerful, it's humble, it's heartfelt, it's full of passion. And there we will spend most of our time. So number one, let's get, let's get there. And so we're going to walk through the first two points fairly quickly. First point is Joseph's test. And this is in verses 1 through 5. Now, this Joseph has been testing these brothers for three chapters. Okay, ever since chapter 41, when Joseph was exalted and the brothers come to Egypt in chapter 42, Joseph has been undergoing a series of tests with these brothers. He told them to go get Benjamin, their youngest brother, his full biological brother. And they went, they left Simeon behind, they went to their father. And in chapter 43, they got Benjamin and they bring him back and they're and they're, they're have, they had a big meal with Joseph, and that's where we left off. Remember, the brothers don't know this is Joseph. It's been a 20-year gap here. Joseph is an Egyptian to them, an Egyptian ruler that they have no idea about, even though Joseph knows who they are. Now, this is the ultimate test. 
that we see. Joseph tells the brothers, or actually a servant, to go put his silver cup, verse 2, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, who was Benjamin. Now remember in chapter 43, verse 34, Joseph had already shown some favoritism toward Benjamin by giving him five times as much as the others at the dinner. And now he's going to test them. That was a test. Would they be upset about that? Or would they say, well, God's just being God. Joseph, the ruler's being the ruler, and he's giving grace as he wants to give grace, which the brothers have had a problem with all along. So in chapter 44, he tells him, put the cup in the sack, and then go out and get them. So he's setting them up here, and that's what happens. This is the ultimate test. It involves Benjamin. These brothers had originally sold Rachel's other son, right, into slavery, namely Joseph. Now would they do the same? Because what's going to happen is ultimately he's setting them up for an opportunity to sell the youngest brother into slavery. Because he's going to come back with the silver cup, as we see, and Benjamin's guilt is going to be revealed. And that's going to give these brothers one last test. Are they going to do to Benjamin what they did to me? Namely, sell them off into Egypt, Egyptian servanthood and slavery, and leave their father broken and hurting all over again. And so this is the ultimate test, and this is what Joseph does with them. So he tells them, put the cup in the bag, go out and find him. In verse 4, we read, they had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this from this cup that my Lord drinks, and by this that he practices divination? You have done evil in doing this. And when he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. So they're being set up. That's Joseph's test. Point number two, Benjamin's guilt. Now, I put guilt in quotation marks is because he's not actually guilty. I mean, Joseph is the, 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 the one who's setting all this up. But let's look at what unfolds here. Verse 7, they said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? I mean, why have you repaid evil for good? We've done nothing wrong. Verse 8, behold, the money that we found in the mouths of our sacks we brought back to you. He says, remember that? We didn't steal from you. We, we brought all the money back in chapter 43. Verse 9, whichever of your servants is found with it shall die, and we also will be my Lord's servants. And then verse 10, let it be as you say, the servant says. He who is found with it shall be my servant, and the rest of you shall be innocent. Then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and each man opened his sack, and he searched beginning with the eldest Ending with the youngest, you can imagine. Open, open, open. <gasps> They're breathing every time. Sigh of relief, sigh of relief. No cup, no cup, no cup, no cup. With the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And all God's people said, oh no. Oh no. Verse 13, then they tore their clothes. And every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to their city. Now, this tearing of the clothes is an important detail. You might think, oh, they're just stricken with grief. And they are, and they rip their clothes to shred. But think about this. This is actually a good sign that they tear their clothes. Because remember when Rachel's other son, Joseph, when it was reported to him, to Jacob, who, that Joseph had died, 
Who was the only one that tore his clothes? Jacob. Brothers didn't tear their clothes. Brothers didn't care. Now they care. They tear their clothes because they don't want to break the heart of their father. They tear their clothes because they don't want to leave Benjamin in Egypt. And they tear their clothes because they're doing their best to obey and follow God and be honest men, and they keep tripping up. That's why they tear their clothes. This is a sign of solidarity with Benjamin, with Jacob, and this is, this is good. This is further evidence that these brothers really have changed. They are different men. And with that groundwork laid, seeing Joseph's test and, Ju- and Benjamin's guilt, let's spend the rest of our time talking about the last point, number three, Judah's intercession. Judah's intercession, because this is a remarkable, remarkable passage. And this takes up the majority of the chapter. We begin at verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house. So Judah is emerging here. We've seen this. He's emerging as the leader of the family. And this is according to God's purpose and design, as we will see in coming chapters. Remember, chapter 38 of Genesis is all about Judah. It's like an interruption in the Joseph story. We start with the Joseph story in chapter 37, and then we go right into this long story about Judah in chapter 38. Then we get back to the Joseph story in 39, and that follows all the way out through the end of the, of the book of Genesis. But this explains, 38 is critical because, like I told you at the beginning of this series, the story of Joseph is really not about Joseph at all. Joseph, even though he's the focal point of the story, he's a supporting actor. Because the whole point of the story is how is God going to preserve the line of the Messiah through a famine? And the answer is Judah. Judah is going to be. Now, Joseph is the instrument that he uses to to get the family into Egypt, to bring the family up into power, and to provide them with a means of escaping this famine. But Judah is the key figure here. So Judah, and that's why we see here in verse 14 it's that the family is referred to as Judah and his brothers. Judah is taking a role of leadership here. Verse 14, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, and they fell before him to the ground. They've got to be just trembling at this point. Verse 15, Joseph said to them, what deed is this that you have done? Verse 16, Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? How can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup was found. Now, if you think about this, think about these, especially Judah, the one speaking here, he has got to be absolutely livid with Benjamin, or at least tempted. Because as far as he knows, Benjamin stole that cup. And it's always the sons of Rachel that are getting us into trouble, causing problems in our family. But Judah doesn't do that. He owns the guilt himself. Notice all that language. He's not saying, "Ah, it's all Benjamin's fault, it's all his fault. No, Judah says, how can we clear ourselves? He implicates himself. God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we, we are my Lord's servants, both We and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. So they are showing solidarity with Benjamin. They're not throwing him to the wolves here. Verse 17, but he said, 
Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Now there's the test. You guys can get off right now, scot-free. You can go right back to your father. Leave Benjamin here. He's my servant for life. They've got an opportunity to do with to Benjamin what they did to Joseph. Sell him off into slavery. Get away with it without any guilt, so they speak. And we expect, the, if these brothers, you know, track record up to that point, yeah, this is, have they really changed? Are they going to walk away? Are they going to leave him? Verse 18, Judah comes through in the clutch. Here's what he says. Then Judah went up to him and said, Oh, my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears and let not your anger burn against your servant for you're like Pharaoh himself. Now he recounts the story. My Lord asked his servant saying, have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have a father, an old man, Jacob, and a young brother, Benjamin, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, Joseph, and he alone is left, Benjamin, of his mother's, that's Rachel, children, and his father, Jacob, loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, right? That's chapter 42. Go get him. He's not here with you. Verse 22, we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. And that's true. That's exactly what Jacob told them. Verse 23, then you said to your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. So when we went back to your servant, this is he's recounting what happened in chapter 43. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother, Benjamin, goes with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man, Joseph's face, unless our youngest brother, Benjamin, is with us. Then your servant, my father, talking about Jacob, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, surely he's been torn to pieces, and I've never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you shall bring down my gray hairs in evil to Sheol. Now, this is the first time Joseph's heard about his dad and how he feels about all this. Imagine Joseph now hearing this information about how his dad is struggling emotionally with all of this and it's got to be tugging at the heartstrings it's got to be i don't want to hurt my dad verse 30 now therefore as soon as i come to your servant my father and the boy's not with us that is we haven't brought benjamin home then as his life is bound up in the boy's life as soon as he sees that boy is not with us he will die and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. If we don't bring Benjamin home, our dad will die. And Joseph is hearing that. And he's got to be um, a, a, just, a, just a ball of emotion right now. He's struggling at one level because he, he, he's hearing about his dad. He's got to be fighting back the tears. But he's also hearing about how his brothers have changed. These are different men. 
Notice verse 32. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy. Judah saying, look, I told my dad that if Benjamin wasn't brought home, he could take my life. Verse 33, now therefore please let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy's not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. He said, take me, take me. What has happened to Judah? What has happened to Judah? The brother who first hatched the plan in chapter 37 to sell Joseph as a slave has come full circle by offering himself as a slave for Rachel's other son. What do we see here on the part of Judah? On the part of Judah, we see two things. We see an act of intercession. He steps in the gap And he pleads with Joseph, not knowing it's Joseph, but pleads with Joseph to take him instead of Benjamin. And he offers himself as a substitute. Now, what do we we learn from this chapter? I want you to see this. This This is the theme. Out of love for his father and love for his brothers... He is willing to sacrifice himself. Do you know that story anywhere else? Out of love for his father and out of love for his brothers, Judah is willing to sacrifice himself. This picture of intercession points us to the lion of the tribe of Judah the Lord Jesus Christ, who out of love for his father and out of love for us, his brothers, laid down his life as a sacrifice. So I want to conclude with three lessons. These will be, don't think conclusion is in three minutes. Think conclusion is in about 10 minutes, okay? But we're going to look at three acts of intercession. You've got to give that preacher warning. Sometimes you got to throw that out there because we say in conclusion a lot, and I know what y'all are thinking. All right, so we're going to talk about three kinds, three, three, three uh, images of intercession here in conclusion. Let's talk about Jesus' intercession first. Since he is the one this chapter is pointing, his intercession is the one this chapter is pointing forward to. Luke chapter 22, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have interceded for you. I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. You know why, brothers and sisters, our faith has not failed to this point? Because we have a lion of the tribe of Judah who is interceding and praying for us. That our faith not fail. Satan has demanded to sift many of us like wheat to take us out of the kingdom. But Jesus has prayed for us. And, his, and our faith will not fail on account of his prayers. John 17, of course, we read of Jesus' prayer for his disciples as he prays for not just 
those disciples who were following him on earth at that moment, but also all who would believe in him through the message of the apostles. And he asks that they, that we, even right now, would be protected from the evil one and brought safely home so that we might see and share the glory of God. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently, he, talking about Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, think about that. It says that he is able, Jesus is able, to save to the uttermost. That is completely, to get us all the way to glory. Those who draw near to God through him, since that's the only way we can draw near to God, we're not drawing near to God any other way than through Christ. So we draw near to God through Christ, and as a result of that, he is able to save us to the uttermost. Now, how does he do that? Because he always lives as a resurrected God-man at the right hand of God to make intercession for us, to plead on our behalf before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. And that's what Hebrews 7.25 says. Christ forever intercedes for us. When we fail, he asks the Father for mercy on us. He pleads our case with the Father and secures the grace we need to be more and more conformed to his image. And the Father, out of love for us and for his Son, always answers these prayers. Always answers these prayers offered on behalf of his children. One more passage on Jesus' intercession. 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, which we do, we have an advocate, an intercessor with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world. And that's why the second verse before the, throne above, before the throne of God above says, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, the sin, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just, Jesus Christ the righteous, is satisfied to look on Christ and pardon me, since he died in my place, offering his life as a willing sacrifice for me out of love for his father and out of love for his brother. So that's Jesus' intercession. That is the intercession that's the focus of chapter 44 in Genesis that we see pictured in Judah. Judah stepping in and offering himself in the place of his brothers out of love for his father, picturing the greater lion of the tribe of Judah as Jesus is referred to in the book of Revelation. Now, two more acts of intercession are equally important here, and I want us to consider those. Here's a second one, the Spirit's intercession. You know, you not only have Jesus interceding for you, you also have the Spirit interceding for you. Romans chapter 8, verse 26, Likewise, the Spirit 
The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Ever been there? I have no idea what to pray for. I've been there. I know many of you have. We'll all be there at some point. We do not know what to pray for. But here's the good news. The Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. I mean, invisibly and inaudibly, the Holy Spirit takes our prayers and makes them conform to the perfect will of God for us. His ministry of intercession is effectual. God knows and attends to the mind of His Spirit as the Spirit prays for us. He will always hear and always grant the Spirit's prayers. We need not fear that the imperfection of our prayers and the lack of knowing what to pray for and the weakness of our flesh will prevent us from persevering to the end and keeping us from waiting patiently for the final glory to come. Because we have the Holy Spirit praying for us when we don't know what to pray for. God, the Holy Spirit, prays perfectly and His requests for us are always granted. In his commentary on Romans, Douglas Moo wrote, when we do not know what to pray for, yes, even when we pray for things that are not best for us, we need not despair, for we can depend on the Spirit's ministry of perfect intercession on our behalf. It's one of the most precious gifts we have, that the Spirit is praying for us when we don't know what to pray for, and that the Son is interceding for us when we are weak and broken, and sinful, and feel disqualified from inheriting the kingdom of God. Third and finally, our intercession for one another. Because the Bible not not only speaks of Jesus interceding for us, and not only speaks of the Spirit interceding for us, it also speaks of the importance of us interceding for one another. Just like Judah interceded for a real man, with a real problem. So we are called as God's people, as real people, as real brothers and sisters to intercede for one another. Believers are commanded in James 5.17 to pray for one another. Repeatedly, the Apostle Paul pleads in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, brothers, pray for us. Massimo pled it this morning, pray for us, pray for us. The Apostle Paul's letters to churches testify of his prayers for them. Ephesians chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 3, they're filled with prayers that Paul recorded as of the things that he is praying for those churches. He's interceding for them. Even Jesus himself asked for the prayers of his people. Remember when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he asks his disciples, Peter, James, and John, for their prayers. While he's suffering, and I read something yesterday along these lines where, you know, we, we typically think that, that Jesus is scolding his disciples when he comes to them and says, could you not wait with me one hour? The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's not scolding them. He's just stating facts. Amen. What he does is he comes forward and he says, guys, thanks for giving it a shot. Thanks for giving it a shot. But he knew they were weak. He knew they were tired. He knew they were fatigued. One of the four chief characteristics of the church in Jerusalem after Pentecost, and we saw this back in the spring when we were considering 
the marks of a, of a devoted church member, we saw that they devoted themselves to the prayers. That's intercessory prayer for the church. Can anyone doubt that these corporate prayers that the early church devoted themselves to were much prayer for each other? While intercession for others may have become more common among believers after Pentecost, it wasn't even unusual in the Old Testament period. For instance, you remember the prophet Samuel assured his fellow Israelites in 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 23, Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And these Christ-centered prayers that we have referred to in Ephesians 1 and Philippians 1 and Colossians 1 and 1 Thessalonians 3 and 2 Thessalonians 1 are all prayers that are offered for each other. So in conclusion, and really in conclusion this time, what do we, what do we see, what do we take away from Genesis chapter 44 and our consideration of the intercession of Judah? Remember, as, I, as we've talked about a lot as we've gone through this series on Joseph, when you read a chapter of the Bible, you never stop with the characters that are right there. You always have to draw the story up and into the main character. The Bible is one story. It has one hero. And his name's Jesus. It's not Judah. Judah is a pointer to the great hero, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So when we read about Judah and we see this courage and we see this change and we see this love, we don't just say, wow, I want to be like Judah. We should. I mean, that's a good thing, but that shouldn't be first. What should be first is, thank you that I have a Judah. I'm glad I have a Judah. Aren't you? Because guess what? Before God, all of us got the cup in the bag. We are guilty as charged. You put the cup, we're going to all stand before God one day and give an account of our lives. And when we put the bag on the ground, the cup's going to be in there. And what are you going to do about that? What are you going to do when you stand before God and the cup's in the bag? You need an intercessor. You need someone who's lived in your place and died in your place and says to the Father, don't worry, got that covered. He's mine. That's my brother. So Father, out of love for him and out of love for me, Forgive that son of yours, and the Lord will. That's the story. We are the guilty brothers. We are the ones who have sinned, and no amount of reformation and change and hope so and try to do better is going to fix that. We need an intercessor. We need a mediator. We need a Savior, and that Savior has arrived, and he is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. We are the ones who deserve to be torn to pieces. Sold into indentured servanthood in hell forever. And yet God in His grace has provided someone who has bound up His life with our life. Namely, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a love stronger than the love that Jacob had for Benjamin. Way stronger. Jesus loves us more than Jacob loved Benjamin. And he would rather die than live without us. 
I mean, what would really bring Jesus, if we could say it this way, gray hairs down with sorrow to Sheol is to not be with us forever, to not have his people with him. And so he would rather die. And God has provided a pledge of safety for us. A pledge of safety. That's, what, that's the way Judah describes his relationship with Jacob and Benjamin. He says, I, 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 when, I, when I told my dad I'd bring him back, I, it was a pledge of safety. I will get him here. And that's what our Lord Jesus says to us. He's our pledge of safety. We're okay. We're going to make it. We're going to make it all the way to glory on the strong arms of Jesus. Because he has become a pledge of safety for us. He says, I shall bear the blame before my father. I'll take the blame if you will let him go free. And God has done that. And it's as if Jesus is saying from the tomb in verse 34, how can I go back to my father if the boy's not with me? Jesus is going back to his father, and he's got a whole multitude behind him of brothers and sisters that he's carrying back with him. And he knows that with that, his father will rejoice. Because the angels in heaven rejoice over one sinner who repents. God delights in the multitude that is going to come rushing into the new Jerusalem as a result of the work of his son. Are you going to be among them? I sure hope so. If Jesus is your only hope, if you are relying upon him as your only righteousness and your only assurance and your pledge of safety before God, then he will take the silver cup out of your bag and he'll drink the wrath that's in it all the way down to the very dregs. And you will be forgiven. But if you're yet outside of Christ, come to Christ this morning. Surely you need an intercessor. Surely the thought of standing before God right now in your own Self-righteousness is not an appealing thought. It's not going to pass the test. There's one life and one death that passes the test, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ's life and death. And it can be yours if you will but ask him and call upon his name. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for the opportunity to think about, meditate on the glory of your intercession through the Lord Jesus Christ and the ministry of your spirit in our lives. Thank you for the greater Judah. Thank you for the lion of the tribe of Judah who has come and laid his life down for us. You sent him, Father, out of love for us. Lord Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for being willing to be our pledge of safety. Thank you for stepping into our mess. Thank you for offering your life in place of ours. Lord Jesus, we worship you, and we want to rise now in, in song to celebrate what you have done and close this service in worship to you for all that you have done and continue to do as our mighty, unstoppable intercessor. Spirit, we can't stop this sermon also and close this prayer without thanking, for you, thanking you for your mighty intercession on our behalf as well. Thank you for gro- all of your groanings for us. Thank you for all the ways in which you intercede for us when we don't know what to pray for. Thank you for keeping us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for preserving us up to this moment. Carry on the work that you've done. Complete it. Thank you for praying that our faith won't fail. We praise your name. Amen. Let's stand together.